0: Okay, you can turn uh, again in your Confessions of Faith to Chapter Eight. We're going to complete the study on the Person of Christ this morning, and then Pastor Butler, uh, two Sundays from now, will look at, uh, will uh, lead you through the work of Christ from the same chapter, Lord willing. Uh, so, finishing up the Person of the uh, the Person of the Mediator, the Person of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, closing off with His uh, continuing His true humanity. So, I'm going to read. Uh, paragraphs 2, 3, and 7. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that being wholly harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished... Uh, Yeah, there's a spelling mistake there. Anyway... uh, He might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator in surety, which office he took not upon himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who also put all power and judgment in his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. Paragraph 7, Christ, in the work of mediation, acteth according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself, Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. So we're just going to continue looking at the human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at some of these clauses uh, in paragraph 8 uh, specifically and then, uh, and largely and then some that come from paragraph 3 and paragraph 7 as well. The first thing we want to note this morning... Well, maybe just briefly by a way of reminder, last time we looked uh, really just at the clause in paragraph two, where it speaks of the fact that the Son of God did, when the fullness of the time was come, take upon him man's nature. We had a look uh, and considered the fact that Christ's coming into this world is one whereby he assumes man's nature, he became man not by subtraction, not by addition, but by the assumption of human nature unto union with himself. Uh, so this morning we want to then first start by looking at the human nature of Christ with respect to the clause concerning Mary and the Holy Spirit coming down upon her. The specific language there you can see sort of it right in the middle of the paragraph, Uh, "...being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures." Now, this clause that's included here in the Confession of Faith, that section uh, doesn't appear in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it doesn't appear in the Savoy Declaration. Not because those Christians didn't believe it, it's just that the Baptists, by virtue of being later in time, 1677, um, uh, in reflecting upon uh, the Bible and reflecting upon certain heresies as well, uh, added that additional information when speaking about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they are affirming biblical truth, and they're also Um, They're also rejecting particular errors in the history of the church, and actually some errors that were contemporary to them. Uh, In the 17th century, there were Dutch, German, and Anabaptist churches that, uh, that denied that Christ, that the Son of God, had his flesh by the substance of Mary. Um so given that particular context they're combating that particular error but that was no new error uh the apollinarians in the in the uh in the 4th and 5th centuries um uh the um uh the uh, valentians also in the early church uh, denied certain important biblical truths concerning the son of god having his human nature by the substance of his earthly mother mary um this is Turriton on the, uh, the birth of Christ according to uh, the Holy Spirit over, uh, overshadowing Mary and sort of you know, combating particular errors and also dealing with some possible misconceptions that Christians may have. What does it mean that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary? And maybe more specifically, what does it mean with regards to being conceived by the Holy Spirit? So this is Turretin. Christ was invisibly formed in the womb of the Blessed Virgin without the concurrence of man. The act of principle was not a man, but by the power and overshadowing of the Holy Ghost. Acting here, not materially, so there's not some sort of divine material, if you will, um, being implanted in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Acting here, not materially, but only efficiently, by power not by seed, by might, not by intercourse, so that he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by the substance of the Spirit, but by blessing and consecration as the ancients express it. Um, so we want to understand you know, those uh, important truths because people you know, uh, outside of the church or maybe even those with a, a measure of ignorance inside the church um, might think, okay, is, it, is there some sort of divine substance? Is there some sort of you know, material reality behind um, the, uh, the conception of the, the Lord Jesus Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary? Uh, no, it is by power, uh, by might, by blessing and consecration, not materially but efficiently. Now, let's just go to our Bibles here for a moment to see where we find in our Bibles this particular truth. And you can turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke is a is a good place that speaks concerning this, and actually, the confession of faith is bringing out this language from the Gospel of Luke when it speaks uh, concerning that that clause or those clauses that we just read. Luke, excuse me, Luke chapter one, and uh, when you get to Luke chapter one, we'll notice (coughs) uh, beginning at verse twenty nine. Luke 1.29, But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying um, and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. Notice as well at verse 42, Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of Of your womb. Uh, Also, we could note in Luke chapter 2, there is much language there with regards to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ um, according to to Mary. And then, as well, we would want to note, you don't have to turn there, Galatians 4 4, and it's language you hear often from the pulpit, both in preaching and in prayer, where in the fullness, uh, when the fullness of the times had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Um, and so we need to uphold the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was really born of a woman the Son of God uh, according to His assumed humanity was born of a woman and this was not by the uh, active principle of man remember she is the Virgin Mary it was not by some sort of divine material but was again efficiently by power by blessing and consecration um, and we want to note that it, last time when we talked about the assumption uh, of human nature by the Son of God, the, the, we, we need to understand that the conception of the, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ according to His humanity in the womb of the Virgin Mary was not separate from in time from the assumption of the human nature. In other words, there was no time where the human nature did not have personhood, um, remember that the Lord Jesus Christ did not assume a person, he assumed man's nature. Because we have one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, um, who, is, who exists at, uh, in divine and, and human nature, or the divine nature uh, and the human nature united in one person. So he didn't assume a human person, if that was the case, then, then Nestorianism would be true, that there would be two persons simply united by, uh, by honor, um, you know, by glory, by grace, um, engaging in some sort of harmonious mediatorial work. Um, so the conception and the assumption concur simultaneously. There was never a time where the human nature was without personhood and the Son of God provides that very personhood to the human nature. So, all of that to come back to the blessed truth that the Son of God was born of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And this speaks to the true humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. as one of the reasons why a number of heretics opposed um, this particular truth or. Uh, tweaked it in error was because they denied the true humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. We as Christians uphold that true humanity and that is the the blessed topic of our ongoing study here. So, He is, the Lord Jesus Christ, is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Uh, Secondly, we want to note this language of essential properties and common infirmities. This language precedes that particular uh, language of uh, the the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her. But you often hear this language from the pulpit uh, from Pastor Butler, especially as he's been working through the Gospel of John, where he talks about the Word that was with God, the Word that was God, taking upon himself flesh, or he became flesh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Pastor Butler uses that language that Christ assumed our nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, taken from this uh, very chapter and paragraph. So what does that mean, essential properties and common infirmities? Tracy, could you get me a Kleenex? I don't know why. All week I haven't had to wipe my nose, but when it comes to studying the confession, there's something with the confession of faith and wiping my nose, sorry for anybody listening online, and sorry to all of you. Thank you. Okay, so with all the essential properties and common infirmities uh, thereof, what, what does that mean? Um, just to help us a little bit, and then we're going to consider some biblical, uh, some language from the Bible Uh, But this is Turretin on this particular reality of essential properties. If Christ was not made like us in all things as to identity of nature, he could not truly redeem us since sin must be expiated in the same nature in which it was committed. Um, So Christ needs to have the essential properties of humanity um, in order to redeem man. Um, if he doesn't have true humanity, then men are not redeemed. Men cannot be redeemed. Uh, remember that sort of you know, common um, maxim of the early church, that which is not uh, assumed is not healed. So if Christ does not have true humanity, if he does not have the essential properties of man's nature, then man cannot be redeemed. Um, so it's very important that we, that we understand that. And as we study this, we ought to, at the same time as, as learning, at the same time as studying, uh, we ought to be overwhelmed and we ought, by, by the truth of, of the condescension of the Son of God. We ought to be marveling in the reality that the Eternal One took on finitude for our redemption. So, essential properties first, and then we'll look at common infirmities, but essential properties of human nature, some things in the Bible, some language in the Bible where we see uh, this, where we see his true humanity. Um, And first and simply, he is clearly called man by the Holy Scriptures. Remember, when Peter, not when he begins the preaching, but as Peter continues his preaching in Acts chapter 2... in that section where he jumps into the person of Christ, his, his deity, his true humanity, and his work, he says, uh, men of Israel, a man attested to you. Um, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you. So he uses this language of Jesus Christ and he uses the language of man. And that that man was attested to uh, that particular first century audience by miracles, signs, and wonders which he did in their midst. So the language of the Bible uses the language concerning Christ and it uses the language of man. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.5 There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So it refers to Christ as man and rightly so. Uh, secondly, he has and does those things that only men do. When we look at the, uh, the narrative accounts in the Gospels, we see that the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, truly God, yet having assumed uh, man's nature for our recovery, He has and does those things that only men do. He wept. Uh, he walked. He ate. He uh, bled. He died. Um, and so He has and does those things that only men have and do. Um, and this is wherein we ought to also just you know, stop and pause to reflect upon that, that great condescension. You know, it ought to be the, the, the heartbeat of the Christian that ever and always looks back upon or reflects upon the, the incarnation of the Son of God and rejoices in it. Uh, that's where our redemption lies. That's where Christianity is in the Incarnation, the Son of God assuming our nature uh, for our redemption. So as we rehearse the true humanity of Christ, we're not simply rehearsing doctrine for head knowledge sake, uh, but we're rehearsing doctrine to glory in the blessed faith of Christianity found in the Incarnate Son of God. Um, Thirdly, he is referred to in terms of human descendancy. As we read our Bibles, we see that Christ is the seed and the son of Abraham. We see that he is the seed and son uh, of David according to the flesh. We read in um, you know, Matthew 1 and in Luke the genealogies with regards to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Matthew 1 and Luke 3, and we see that the Lord Jesus Christ is connected to genealogical history, Um, As he is eternally begotten of the Father according to his deity, he is in time begotten of his earthly mother according to his humanity, and that with respect um, to the nation of Israel as the promised Messiah. Fourthly, he is said to be a partaker of flesh. Remember the language of John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, turn with me uh, to the book of Hebrews as well where we see this same language set forth with regards to Christ being a partaker of flesh. Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, first in verse 10, and then verses 14 and 16. Notice in Hebrews 2 verse 10, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are, uh, are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Verse 14, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death you might destroy him who had the power of death that is the devil and verse 16 for indeed he does not give aid to angels but he does give aid to the seed of abraham so he didn't take on the nature of angels but he took on the nature of the seed of abraham in order to redeem men so he is said to be a partaker of flesh Fifthly, he spoke and willed distinctly according to his humanity. You can turn to Matthew 26. So, the essential properties then, in this case of man, uh, is willing according to that particular nature. And in Matthew 26, uh, Christ in the garden of Gethsemane, notice at verse 39, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So Christ there, speaking according to his assumed humanity, evidence that he is human. He spoke and willed distinctly according to his humanity. Uh, Sixthly, he grew in wisdom and knowledge and learned obedience. Um, If you're taking notes, you can note Luke 2.52 and Hebrews 5.8. Uh, Luke 2.52, Hebrews 5.8. He grew in wisdom and knowledge and learned obedience. Of course, God, the Son of God, according to His divinity, His deity, doesn't grow in knowledge and doesn't learn obedience. In fact, it can be said of God that God is neither obedient nor disobedient because He is the glorious one. He is the lawgiver. Um, and so Christ, according to his humanity, grows in wisdom, grows in knowledge, and he learns obedience. And that learning of obedience doesn't mean that he moves from having been disobedient to being obedient, but the language in Hebrews is actually that he learned obedience through suffering. So, being perfect in his assumed humanity, he learned obedience through the suffering that he went through, and that a substitutionary obedience um, for his elect. So he grows in wisdom and knowledge, and he learned obedience. That cannot be said of deity, but it must be said of true humanity. And this goes against the um, sort of the, the old Roman Catholic and the the uh, the the errorists' approach that Christ's growing in wisdom and knowledge was simply um, sort of uh, a turn of phrase, or it wasn't really the case. It was just that. Christ gave the semblance of this um, in order to be sort of an example and in a didactic manner to teach his disciples. But he truly did grow in wisdom and in knowledge. Uh, Seventhly, and getting almost to lastly, he provides infallible post resurrection proofs of his true humanity. Remember the blessed language of Luke chapter 1 and and Acts chapter 1, the same author. Luke in Luke 1 and Luke in Acts 1, where it speaks about the certainty, the infallible proofs, the evidences. Luke searching out those eyewitnesses uh, of the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, those eyewitnesses of His true humanity, and writing according to that. And Christ, in His um, post-resurrection doings, proving to His audience that He truly was uh, the Messiah, and that he truly was man. Uh, this is Vincentius on this particular truth. He's an, uh, he's an early church uh, father. Be it the infatuation of the Manichees, those preachers of hallucination, who say that the Son of God, God, was not a human person really and truly, but that he counterfeited the person of a man in feigned conversation and manner of life. But the Catholic faith, that is, small c, universal Christian faith, teaches that the Word of God became man in such wise that He took upon Him our nature, not feignedly and in semblance, but in reality and truth, and performed human actions, not as though He were imitating the actions of another, but as performing His own and as being in reality the person whose part He sustained. Uh, So He provides those posts, uh, resurrection proofs of his true humanity. It's a wonderful scene, that Luke 24 scene. Uh, in fact, there was, um, there was an early church father, Irenaeus, who spent a lot of time in Luke 24 and using Luke 24 against the heretics of his day to argue for the true humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what, what do we find there in Luke 24? But the, 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 uh, the post-resurrected Christ, the resurrected Christ, um, meeting with his disciples... And he, he, uh, because for joy, the disciples still doubted that it was truly Christ, he says, look look at me, handle me and see. You know, first he says, see that it is I. Then he says, handle me and see that it is I. But they're still in a measure of doubt for joy. uh, And he eats broiled fish and honeycomb before them. He's demonstrating that, it truly, that He truly is Christ. He's not a specter. He's not a phantom. But it is truly Christ, uh, the One who took upon Himself humanity for our redemption and recovery. And lastly, He is prepared and equipped by the Holy Spirit for His mediatorial task. And that's the stuff of paragraph 3. Before we get there, though, just to, to note a few things in a moment. When we consider essential properties... That, that language. Turn, turn with me to uh, chapter 2 for a moment. Because the, the language of essential properties we can use with regards to his true deity. Now, obviously, they're not the, the, the essential properties of humanity when we're considering deity, but to understand the essential properties of humanity, just notice a few things with regards to essential properties of deity. Uh, if you have a look at paragraph two, just, just after we see, just after we read a most pure spirit, um, notice invisible. An essential property of deity is deity is invisible. And that's more than just can't see. Um, but, but we won't elaborate on that. But Christ, according to his humanity, has the essential property of the fact that he is visible. Um, without body, an essential property of humanity is with body. In fact, the old creeds and confessions, and the language was continued by uh, our forebears in the 17th century, simple Christian language, is that Christ assumed body and reasonable soul. So, if we were to sum up essential properties, we could say a body and a reasonable soul. But notice, without body, Christ has body according to his humanity. That's an essential property. Uh, Parts. Um, You know, uh, the divine nature is simple. Christ, according to his humanity, is complex. That is, he is composed of parts. Passions. Uh, Christ, according to his deity, an essential property of deity, is. Uh, impassibility. Christ, according to his humanity, is passable. Uh, immortality is a, an essential property of deity. Mortality is an essential property of humanity. Christ, according to his humanity, has that. Um, immutability. It says here, who is immutable. The divine nature. Christ, according to his divinity, is immutable. That is unchangeable. But Christ, according to his humanity, an essential property of humanity is mutability or changeability. Christ has that. We could continue through that list and do that sort of juxtaposition or comparison with regards to the essential properties of deity and the essential properties of humanity. Now, on that last point, if you can turn to paragraph 3 with me, and that last point was, he is prepared and equipped by the Holy Spirit for his mediatorial task. Notice paragraph 3. The, the true humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ is evidenced by the fact that according to that true humanity, He is given the Holy Spirit above measure for the exercise of His mediation, His mediatorial task, His redeeming activity. Notice paragraph 3, the Lord Jesus in His human nature, thus united to the divine. Another affirmation of the hypostatic union in the previous paragraph, it, the language was joined together. Uh, inseparably joined together in one person. Here we see the specific language of united. The Lord Jesus in His human nature, thus united to the divine in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. Now, this is a biblical truth. As we look at the, the Scriptures, as we look at the narrative concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, we see that the Spirit is given to Him. Remember that occasion in, in, Luke, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, where the Lord Jesus Christ uh, basically, not basically, he does, read from Isaiah 61 concerning the fact that the Spirit of the Lord is, uh, is upon me. And he, he speaks, he cites Isaiah 61, which is about the Son of God incarnate, the Spirit of, the God, be, the Spirit of God being upon him in order to bring blessings to humanity. Um, so the Holy Spirit is given to the incarnate Christ according to his humanity. And notice... It's for a particular purpose, but before that, notice, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, we often use that language with respect to his deity, and of course we should. Um, according uh, According to his deity, he has treasures of wisdom and he has treasures of knowledge. But this is here specifically speaking with regards to His assumed humanity. Same with the fullness dwelling in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell to the end that being wholly harmed... And this is the end of the giving of the Holy Spirit to the incarnate Christ. To the end that being wholly harmless and undefiled and full of grace and truth, He might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator in surety. So, the Holy Spirit is given to the incarnate Christ unto the end that he might exercise to perfection the work of redemption and and mediation. And this is, you know, I think it's it's a wonderful and blessed truth that is often neglected when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ and his incarnate ministry. That is, the role of the Holy Spirit, the fact that the Holy Spirit is given to Christ in order to exercise mediatorial perfection. It's a wonderful truth. This this upholds the glory of the triune God in the mission of redemption. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit perfectly working out the salvation of a multitude which no man can number. And so we often speak about the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the one person of Christ, but we should never do that to the neglect of the consideration of the Holy Spirit given to the the Son of God according to His humanity above measure to the end that He might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator surety, What a blessed reality we have in that language. Ferguson, Sinclair Ferguson, very uh, concisely on this note, says, From womb to tomb to throne, the Spirit was the constant companion of the Son. From, From that blessed conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary... Uh, to the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ to the right hand of the majesty on high, the Holy Spirit was the without measure companion of the Son of God incarnate, that He might perfectly save a multitude of sinners from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So that's essential properties. Now, what about common infirmities? Common infirmities of human nature. What does that mean? Um, well, to help us a little bit, we'll look at so, some Bible in a moment, or we'll consider some Bible in a moment, but just a, a quote from uh, Flavel or Flavel or however you pronounce his name. Do you know Jim? I said Flavel. <laughs> okay, I like Flavel too. <laughs> yeah, Flavel sounds better. Um, okay, so this is Flavel on this language of, well, largely on the language of Christ assuming a true human nature, but also speaking with respect to, to common infirmities. He assumed our nature as with all its integral, uh, integral parts, so with all its sinless infirmities. That's important, sinless infirmities. And therefore it is said of him that it behooved him in all things, uh, that is, all things natural, not formally sinful, as it is limited by the same apostle, to be made like unto his brethren. But here divines carefully distinguish infirmities into personal and natural. Personal infirmities are such as befall particular persons from particular causes, such as dumbness, blindness, lameness, leprosies, monstrosities, and other deformities. There it was no way necessary that Christ should, nor did he at all assume, but the natural ones, and here we go, common infirmities, such as hunger, thirst, weariness, sweating, bleeding, mortality, etc., Which, though they are not in themselves formally and intrinsically sinful, yet are they the effects and consequence of sin? They are so many marks that sin has left of itself upon our natures. And on that account, Christ is said to be sent in the likeness of sinful flesh, Romans 8.3. Wherein the gracious condescension of Christ for us is marvelously signalized that he would not assume our innocent nature as it was in Adam before the fall, while it stood in all its primitive glory and perfection, but after sin had quite defaced, ruined, and spoiled it. So, it wasn't pre-fall Adam that needed salvation. It was post-fall humanity that needed salvation and redemption. And so Christ assumes... True humanity without sin, but with essential properties and common infirmities, and we we can we see some of those common infirmities listed uh, or spoken of in the scriptures, and you know, speaking to true humanity and common infirmities, we see Christ uh, being weary in John four, uh, uh, John chapter four, verse six. His his uh, his weariness. He he's tired. He's he's weary under the labor of journey. Um, we see grief and sorrow. Uh, "'Surely He has borne our griefs "'and carried our sorrows.'" Isaiah 53, uh, verse 4. And it's reiterated in Mark 14, 34. Uh, Christ is is sorrowful even unto death. Uh, Christ weeps. He weeps over Jerusalem. Uh, He weeps at the death of Lazarus. Uh, And as Flavel noted, he hungers, he thirsts, he sweats, he bleeds, he dies. And so he is, Christ assumes, our true humanity with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, and yet without sin. Moving on then, we want to note that particular part of the clause, or that clause itself, yet without sin. So Christ takes upon himself man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, and then of course, and blessedly, yet without sin. So notice the fact of his sinlessness first, Um, and we know this, we glory in this, but let's just turn to our Bibles to a couple places in Hebrews in order to to join together the theological conclusions that that are the confession with the Bible that informs them. Hebrews chapter 4, first of all, Hebrews chapter 4. Notice in Hebrews chapter 4 at verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, that verse 14 is essentially a summary of the book of Hebrews. Uh, or, you know, if you, want, if you wanted a one-verse summary of the book of Hebrews, it is, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And that is the, that is the, the, the stuff of Christian confidence and steadfastness today, here in our lower world, for Free Grace Baptist Church and for all of Christianity. That we have such a great high priest who was like us in all things, yet without sin, who died for us, who lived for us, who died for us, who rose again for us, who has passed through the heavens. Therefore, let us hold fast our confession, because in him we have such a blessed one. Uh, so he is without sin, as the apostle says here. And then in Hebrews chapter 7, uh, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26. Notice the language that we see there. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Wonderful language concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have the fact of His sinlessness that He is without sin, but then we want to note the, the location of this sinlessness um, discussed because remember it's connected to his true humanity. He assumes man's nature as the confession says, informed by the Bible, with essential properties and common infirmities of that human nature, yet without sin. So it's connected to his human nature. We want to note first off, of course, with respect to Christ's essential deity, that he is sinless. the The confession of the the prophet in in Isaiah. Uh, chapter 6. The confession of the angels uh, in Isaiah chapter 6 is that Christ, uh, the one uh, who's, uh, you know, only the hem of his garment fills the temple. Um, The the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. Christ, according to his deity, is of course sinless. He is holy, holy, holy. The confession of faith, speaking of an essential uh, property or a perfection better, of the Lord Jesus Christ according to His deity says that He is most holy. But with respect to the biblical, the biblical grammar of sinlessness as it respects the Lord Jesus Christ, the location of it is to be considered with regards to His assumed and true humanity. We already noted Hebrews 4.14. We noted Hebrews 7.26. Uh, we could also note, uh, note Hebrews 9.14. And First 1 Peter 1.19, That's wonderful language that we have in First 1 Peter 1.19, where it speaks of Christ um, as that uh, that you know Lamb of God without blemish and, and without spot. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that language isn't novel. It isn't new to the New Testament. Uh, Peter is drawing there from his knowledge of and from the Old Testament with regards to the the spotless and you know the blameless, the spotless. Uh, the unblemished sacrifices, the animal sacrifices that were offered up to God in anticipation of the true Lamb of God, the true sacrifice that takes away sins that would come forth in due time. And Peter, speaking of Christ, says that he is a Lamb without blemish and without spot. So when the Bible, with regards to the mission, the, the mediatorial work of the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking of his sinlessness It is speaking in reference to His true and assumed humanity and that sinlessness which is for us. That blessed sinlessness which is rendered or which is displayed substitutionarily uh, as our sinlessness imputed to us, received by faith alone. That is, for our righteousness imputed to us and received by faith alone. So he, uh, Christ, according to his true humanity, has all the essential properties of humanity. He has those common infirmities, those sinless, um, with humanity, and he is without sin, according to his true humanity. Now lastly, we want to note the stuff of paragraph 7 here. Just going to read it again, and then we'll just notice some things and make some observations regarding what it's saying and the blessed truths is uh, that it's conveying so chapter 8 paragraph 7 christ in the work of mediation acteth according to both natures by each nature doing that which is proper to itself yet by reason of the unity of the person that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature now now that's you know it, it can be a sort of difficult language to, to, to track with um, uh, but, but hopefully with a little bit of explanation we can understand it a, a little bit better. Um, but it's, it's, it's conveying the doctrine of Christ and it's protecting the doctrine of Christ uh, from, uh, from the, uh, the assertions of error. So, regarding this paragraph, we're, we're just going to call this section The One Person of Christ in His Mediatorial Work and Some Helps to Speak Properly About Christ. So, first off, we just want to note, he is mediator according to both natures. There is a debate at, you know, in and around the, the turn of the, uh, the Reformation there um, against Roman Catholics by Protestants, and well, between Catholics and Protestants. Catholics assert that Christ is only mediator according to his humanity. Uh, the Protestants argue, as, this, as the confession here upholds, that Christ in his work of mediation, acts according to both natures. Um, And so there's a Protestant assertion here against uh, Roman Catholicism that Christ, in the work of uh, mediatorship, acts according to both his divine nature and his human nature. So he is mediator according to both natures. Secondly, in his work of mediation, he does not do the things proper to one nature according to the other nature. Um, So He doesn't do divine things by the human nature, and He doesn't do human things by the divine nature. Notice the language here is that by each nature, doing that which is proper to itself. So Christ according to His divinity does divine things. Christ according to His humanity does human things. And uh, those things are not um, confused. In fact, we could go back to the language of paragraph two to uphold this and to maybe understand it better. That Christ is that that in um, in the one Christ we have two whole, perfect, and complete natures inseparably joined together without conversion, composition, or confusion. So that's why we must say, in His work of mediation, He does not do things proper to one nature according to the other nature. Um, This is Nehemiah Cox. All that Christ did or suffered is properly referred to His person, but if we consider the immediate principle of the actions, some of them must be referred to His divine nature only, others to His human. So, for example, we say that the Lord Jesus Christ created the world. We wouldn't say that the Lord Jesus Christ, though, created the world according to His human nature. Uh, We say the Lord Jesus Christ died, bled and died. We wouldn't say, though, that the Lord Jesus Christ bled and died according to His divinity. Um, Thirdly, the union of the two natures in the one person affords a manner of speaking concerning Christ. Um, For example, we sing the hymn, um, And Can It Be?, One of the stanzas is, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Um, So the language in the Confession says here, Yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. And you can see the Scripture verses there. One of them is John 3.13, Um, where Christ says, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Um, So, you know, the the Son of Man, uh, you know, a reference, you know, oftentimes it carries the weight of His divinity because in the Old Testament, it's announcing a divine mediator, a divine Messiah, a divine Redeemer, and it uses Son of Man. Um, But, you know, with regards to His humanity, He is a Son of Man. And so Christ can speak of Himself and speaking uh, uh, speaking um, with regards to the person denominated by his humanity, he can say that he is in heaven by virtue of the unity of person. Another example, and maybe an easier easier one here, is uh, Acts twenty. If you want to turn there with me, Acts chapter twenty, the apostle Paul. <clears throat> excuse me, the apostle Paul exhorting the Ephesian elders, and in Acts chapter twenty. Notice, uh, notice at verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. So this is an example where Christ, as denominated by one nature, God, something is attributed to Him that is only true Of the other nature which is the shedding of blood Um, so by virtue of the hypostatic union by virtue of the union of the divine and the human in the one Christ we can sing thou my God shouldst die for me and we have biblical warrant for it now notice the text doesn't say um, you know God uh, or that Jesus Christ according to his divinity uh, shed his blood for the church that would be different Um, Also, we can note, and actually just turn there briefly, 1 Corinthians 2. The confession doesn't list it here, but um, theologians throughout the ages have also cited this particular verse as an example of the same thing we're discussing. 1 Corinthians 2 and um, verse 8. Backing up to verse 6. However... We speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Um, And so it speaks there of the Lord of glory being crucified. Um, as, if, you know, as if to say that it is you know, God being crucified, similar to Acts 20.28. 20, but it's, it's the one Christ, um, as denominated by one nature, uh, having things attributed to him that are true only of the other one. And that language or manner of speaking is legitimate, considering the unity of the person of Christ. And so maybe to understand this better, and working to a close, and then if there are any questions after, after prayer. We can, we can look at those. Fourthly and lastly, the ways we can, we can and can't speak of Christ given these truths. Um, so, you know, by virtue of the unity of person, we can say Christ wept, Christ ate, Christ prayed, Christ bled, Christ died. Of course, that's an easy one. Speaking of the one Christ. In fact, with all of these, we're speaking of the one Christ. Uh, Secondly, by virtue of the unity of person, we can say God wept, God ate, God prayed, God bled, God died. We cannot say, though, connected to that last one, by virtue of the unity of person, we cannot say Christ, according to his divine nature, wept, ate, prayed, bled, died. We can say Christ is omnipresent, omnipotent, And omniscient. We can say that a man is omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. We cannot say, though, that Christ, according to his human nature, is omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. We cannot say the divine nature wept, or the human nature upholds all things by the word of his power. We should not say that the human nature wept, ate, Prayed, bled, died, but that Christ, according to His human nature, wept, ate, prayed, bled, and died. Um, now, if you want, if you want those sort of, you know, sent to you afterwards to, to try to, you know, roll them around in your in your minds a little bit better. But suffice it to say that when we speak of the one Christ, we can say that that one Christ does all things according to His divine and human nature doing those things which are proper to each nature. So Christ, again, upholds all things by the word of His power. Christ eats, walks, weeps, sweats, prays, bleeds, dies. We cannot say, though, that Christ, according to His human nature, upholds all things by the word of His power because that's something that's only true of deity. We cannot say Christ, according to His divine nature, ate, wept, bled, prayed, died um, and so hopefully you know we we can gain a little bit of an understanding of how we can and can't speak of Christ I mean if we if we make a particular error in a measure of a you know lack of you know perfect knowledge we're never going to have perfect knowledge uh, that's okay but it's it helps us to understand the Bible to understand our doctrine of Christ to understand what our forebears are saying as they're arguing for and defending the doctrine of Christ, and to help as others speak to us about Christianity. What does, you know, what does this mean? What does that mean? You say that Christ is God, well, but it says that he ate, wept, slept, you know, bled, and died. If he's God, how can, he, how can that happen? Well, he assumed man's nature into unity of person for our redemption and recovery. Uh, you know, you say God, you know, God, you know, took on humanity, but it says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. You usually don't get it the other way. You usually get it, um, you know, the, the first way that we talked about, but we understand that Christ is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And sort of to wrap all this stuff up with regards to how we can speak about Christ, the glory of his incarnation, and the glory of that incarnation being unto our redemption. This is Alexander of Alexandria, and we'll close with this. He was the mentor for Athanasius. What is this novel mystery? The judge is judged and is silent. The invisible is seen and is not confounded. The incomprehensible is grasped and is not indignant at it. The immeasurable is contained in a measure and makes no opposition. The impassable suffers and does not avenge its own injury. The immortal dies and complains not. The celestial is buried and bears it with an equal mind. Uh, Praise God that the the One who fixed the stars in place was fixed in place upon a tree for our blessed redemption, for our recovery, for our, our salvation. Praise God for the Incarnation Of the Son of God, very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice in who He is, very God and very man, yet one Christ. We thank you that He is our Savior, our mediator, our redeeming King. We pray that You would help us with this knowledge of Christ to all the more glory in the truth of our blessed Savior, that we would glory in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we would glory in the perfect redemption wrought by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that we would now go into worship singing your praises. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Uh, any questions about any... Yes, uh does Um, well, I, I did mention that I did mention that Christ didn't assume a human person, but assumed a human nature. Um, with regards to Christ, there, there's something unique about Christ besides his. And if you want to learn more, you can come to the next sessions in, in our in our book study that talk about um, the the personhood of Christ. The person we, we wouldn't say that Christ is a human person. The reason we can't say that is because the personhood of Christ is provided by his divine personhood. So he doesn't assume a human person. He assumes a human nature and thereby, by that assumption and union, provides the personhood to that human nature. So the uniqueness of Christ is seen in the fact that he is relative to to the rest of humanity, that he's sinless, but also that he's the only instance of humanity that doesn't have... Human personhood, but provides the personhood to the human nature. Um, so there, there, yeah, in, in, in that. But or maybe going, maybe the the part that you're talking about um, with regards to, to personhood and uh, and human nature um, has to do with the fact that I don't know if it, did you say it was from the beginning or the end? It was, it was at the beginning. At the beginning. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of what that what that might have been. Um, that's but there's thinking. there's that. I don't know if that's how, it how it, it's helpful. in the answer. Yeah. Um, but well, and we we should say as well that um, it's it's always persons that do things, not natures. That's why one of the things that we say here is we, we wouldn't say the human nature ate because you know um, if I was to if we were to just speak in normal parlance and I was to tell you that I went out with Tracy on Friday night. I wouldn't say that I went out with a reasonable soul and body that, you know, has essential properties and common infirmities and had dinner with her. I would say that I went out with Tracy. You know, it's always persons that do things according to a nature, not natures that do things. The properties belong to the nature, but it's always a person that does things according to that nature. That's why the confession and theologians have carefully used that language, according to, um, Uh, you know, the old uh, Augustine's, I think he may have started the language that was picked up, um, according to the form of God and according to the form of a servant, using that Philippians 2 language to speak of deity and humanity. So we would always say Christ does according to his divinity or his humanity, or simply without having to do that, just say Christ does. And if someone needs qualification, then we can go beyond that. But because Christ is one person, the blessed unity uh, of Christ, we, we, wouldn't, we, don't, we don't want to always necessarily qualify um, and say, the, so, you know, Christ according to his humanity walked on the water or, or that sort of thing. We always, uh, as often as we can, because the unity of the person, just want to say that Christ did things. In theological precision and articulation and in qualification for better understanding, And so there's no confusion we can then use the language of according to a, a particular nature anything else yeah i just have a little question um, when christ was conceived in mary the holy spirit came up upon him in all fullness or whatever mm-hmm. so then when he was baptized and the dove came down what mm-hmm. did that was that just a symbolic thing or did he give him something well, I think that that punctuated the reality and sort of inaugurated his earthly ministry. It, it confirmed that Christ as the promised one, and it connected back to Old Testament prophecy. Um, remember, you know, Christ in the waters of baptism says, you know, let it so be in order to fulfill all righteousness. Um, so that's sort of the, you know, the the inauguration of his earthly ministry he he goes into the waters of baptism, and then immediately he's set out into the desert, um, and he's tempted by, by the devil. And that, you know, that is the the ongoing, you know, sort of the advent of his of his earthly ministry. So that, you know, that wasn't the giving of the Spirit. That was sort of a, you know an extra measure or an extra signification of the Spirit. Um, made known in order to in order to punctuate and, and inaugurate the earthly ministry of Christ. Uh, any comment on that uh love J- yeah? yeah. for us than it for him. Right? No. Yeah, good. I think too the truth of the unity of the Trinity explodes right there. Oh yeah. No. Yeah that's a that's a perfect uh, that's a perfect argument for the Trinity right there. A beautiful uh, beautiful um, image of the Trinity, and that the old yeah the old church fathers recognized that too. I think is it the Augustine saying? We go to Jordan to see go to Jordan to see the Trinity. Yeah.